Chapter 3. Maneuvering into Position of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 3. Maneuvering into Position Chapter 3. Maneuvering into Position Page 55 Throughout the fall of 2002, U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, and Fifth Corps refined and rehearsed their war plans for regime change in Iraq. In the last few months before the invasion, CENTCOM and CFLCC confronted some mandated additions and challenges that consumed a substantial amount of their planning energy. The focus on weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, as the casus belli for war would require additional forces to secure Saddam Hussein's suspected WMD sites, while a late-breaking early regime collapse scenario would alter the force structure for the invasion and change how the Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, deployed forces to the theater. A policy decision to develop an expatriate Iraqi military force to serve as an Iraqi face on the liberation would draw a mixture of support and ire from the agencies and military units planning the invasion. Turkey's 11th hour refusal to allow the coalition to cross Turkish territory would have profound consequences for the invasion and its aftermath. In light of these distractions, military planning for Phase 4 was a late, uncoordinated effort, with U.S. strategic and operational headquarters so consumed by moving forces and finalizing plans that they gave little attention to what might occur after the fall of Baghdad. In contrast, Saddam's preparations to confront the coalition forces were virtually non-existent until December 2002. Although Ba'athist militias and Iranian regime-sponsored militant groups were well prepared for the American-led offensive, Saddam failed to prepare his military until just weeks before the operation, a result of his disbelief that the United States would actually invade Iraq. Not until the eve of the invasion did Saddam reposition some of his forces south and reinforce the vulnerable Iraqi southern cities with his loyalist paramilitary forces, including the Fedayeen Saddam and the Ba'ath Party militia. The Ground Forces Prepare for War Page 55 Lieutenant General David McKiernan Takes Command As U.S. war planning intensified in the late summer of 2002 and the main effort began to shift the tactical headquarters that would execute the invasion under the CFLCC, General Tommy Franks decided to remove his CFLCC commander, Lieutenant General Paul Mikolashek, who was responsible for overseeing the conflict in Afghanistan and preparing for combat in Iraq. Mikolashek had disagreed with Franks about the prosecution of the war in Afghanistan, and Franks had expressed his frustration with Mikolashek, considering him too cautious to oversee an aggressive invasion campaign. Two important changes followed from the decision to remove Mikolashek. First, the office of the SECDEF, seconded by Franks, proposed setting up a separate combined joint task force for Afghanistan and the war on terrorism so that CFLCC could focus entirely on Iraq for the time being. Second, Franks received permission to replace Mikolashek as CFLCC commander with Lieutenant General David D. McKiernan. McKiernan, then serving as the Army's Operations Officer, or G3, had most recently commanded the 1st Cavalry Division and was familiar with the Iraq invasion plan. He had also served in the Gulf War and Bosnia. 
Although Franks and McKiernan had not previously worked together, McKiernan's rapport with General Eric Shinseki, combined with his reputation for being cool under fire, had earned him Franks' respect. McKiernan's appointment as the new CFLCC commander signaled to CFLCC forces that the invasion of Iraq was near certain to occur. At the CFLCC headquarters, he welcomed a number of new senior staff officers hand-picked by the Army's senior leadership to prosecute the war, including Major General William Fuzzy Webster as McKiernan's deputy, Brigadier General James Spider Marks as his intelligence director, and Major General James D. Thurman as his operations chief. The 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, was also placed under CFLCC's tactical control, meaning the MEF and its new commander, Marine Lieutenant General James Jim Conway, effectively worked for McKiernan, allowing the CFLCC commander to plan a land campaign as a coalition and a joint component command. By October 22nd, McKiernan relocated the entire CFLCC headquarters from Fort McPherson, Georgia, to Camp Doha, Kuwait. He then began a series of exercises that led to CFLCC's operational plan for the invasion, which he named Cobra II after General Omar Bradley's operation to liberate France in 1944. CENTCOM, meanwhile, was finalizing Operations Plan 1003V. As CENTCOM officers worked with CFLCC and Coalition Forces Air Component Command, or CFACC, on its details, it became apparent that the hybrid plan did not afford the Coalition the element of tactical surprise that Generated Start had offered. As a result, CENTCOM decided to revert to the original Generated Start plan that called for initiating the air and ground campaigns simultaneously in hope of building surprise back into the invasion. Shaping Operations CENTCOM's plans for the shaping operations that would precede the main invasion consisted of three components. Special operations to destroy the long-range ballistic missiles the coalition believed the Iraqi regime possessed, a link-up with indigenous militias and resistance organizations in Iraq, and strategic communications aimed at Saddam's regular army forces. Part of 5th Special Forces Group would enter western Iraq to find and neutralize Saddam's suspected long-range ballistic missile sites in order to prevent him from launching missiles at Israel. The remainder of 5th Group would move from Kuwait into southern Iraq to make contact with Iraqi Shia resistance groups and seize the bridgeheads near Nasiriyah in order to prevent Saddam's forces from destroying them and slowing the main invasion force's advance. The 10th Special Forces Group would insert units into northern Iraq and link up with Kurdish Peshmerga militias, secure the northern oil fields near Kirkuk, and prevent Kurdish incursions south of the Green Line. These unconventional operations were to be followed by a two-pronged supporting effort. First, CFACC would begin a bombing campaign to destroy Iraq's air defense systems as well as prominent symbols of the regime. The intent of destroying those key regime nodes was not only to create confusion and disarray among Iraq's command hierarchy, but also to prevent a fortress Baghdad scenario in which the regime might consolidate its forces in a defense in-depth of Baghdad. Concurrent with the air campaign, the coalition would mount information operations to erode the resolve of the Iraqi military and encourage them to surrender. These efforts would set conditions for coalition maneuver forces to begin operations to destroy the Republican Guard and other loyalist military forces and topple the regime. Major Combat Operations 
Although CENTCOM had overall responsibility for the timing of major combat operations and the plan to position units in theater, CFLCC, 5th Corps, and 1st MEF were ultimately responsible for developing the ground forces scheme of maneuver. In CENTCOM's 1003V plan, the stated objective for the ground component was to isolate the regime and defeat the Iraqi regular army and Republican Guard forces. According to the operations order for CFLCC's COBRA II, first issued in October 2002, 1st MEF was the main effort for the first part of the invasion. It was tasked to seize the Talil airfield, establish a bridgehead on the Euphrates River at Nasiriyah, defeat or fix any remaining Iraqi 3rd or 4th Corps units in southern Iraq, and set conditions to conduct decisive operations north and west of the Euphrates River. At the same time, 5th Corps would continue flowing into Kuwait, and upon 1st MEF's completion of these tasks, would become the main effort as 5th Corps advanced to defeat the Republican Guard's Medina Division and other security forces and isolate Baghdad. The CFLCC operations order also instructed 5th Corps to be prepared to exploit sudden regime collapse with rapid ground maneuver to Baghdad. The key task for both 5th Corps and 1st MEF after they isolated Baghdad from two directions was to remove the regime from power. The 5th Corps was tasked with defeating the Iraqi army in southern Iraq and the Republican Guard near Baghdad. The Corps' scheme of maneuver would begin with Apache helicopter attacks against the Medina Division, followed by ground maneuvers to destroy the Medina and secure key terrain at the Karbala Gap, a critical avenue of approach to Baghdad from the southwest near Lake Razaza. Because defeating the Medina Division and other Iraqi forces would require a rapid advance to the Karbala Gap, and the Iraqis were expected to welcome the U.S. presence and offer little resistance, 5th Corps instructed its mechanized forces, the 3rd Infantry Division and 1st Armored Division, to bypass the southern Iraqi cities quickly, rather than enter them to clear enemy forces. 5th Corps also tasked the 101st Airborne Division to seize Saddam International Airport in Baghdad as a critical element of isolating the capital. Two war games in December 2002 and late January 2003 convinced McKiernan to reconsider this scheme and make 5th Corps, the mechanized force, the main effort for the entire mission, given that it could cover Iraq's terrain more quickly than the 1st MEF's light infantry forces. The Winter War Games also highlighted for coalition commanders that their advance could be delayed if the Iraqis destroyed the bridges along the main routes of attack in southern Iraq, and as a result, CFLCC and 5th Corps allocated additional forces to secure those bridgeheads. While the war games proved useful in refining the tactical plan, they reinforced flawed assumptions about Iraqi capabilities. In particular, they overestimated the effectiveness of the Iraqi conventional military forces. CFLCC and 5th Corps did not account for the impact of sanctions on the capabilities of Iraq's military, and the simulated Iraqi units that CFLCC and 5th Corps fought in the exercises were full-strength, fully coordinated formations that were assumed to be able to conduct brigade, division, and on occasion corps-level operations. As a result, the exercises led analysts, operations officers, and commanders to focus on finding and destroying conventional formations and equipment. The simulations used in the run-up to the invasion also pitted ground forces against a new enemy, the, quote, contemporary operating environment opposing force, end quote, that departed from Cold War enemy models in that it was an amalgamation of conventional and paramilitary forces. The latter sought to draw U.S. forces into complex urban terrain to wear them down there rather than engage them in direct combat on a battlefield devoid of civilians. 
In addition to the greater numbers of unconventional forces, the new enemy simulations included fractured social institutions in an attempt to replicate the battlefield complexities U.S. forces had experienced in Bosnia and Kosovo. The new virtual opposing force was certainly more appropriate than the Cold War era situations, but it had the side effect of reinforcing the U.S. military aversion to urban combat and seemingly validated a scheme of maneuver that called for coalition troops to bypass rather than clear Iraq's southern population centers en route to Baghdad. The differences between the capabilities of the contemporary operating environment opponent force and the Iraqi military were significant enough to raise questions about the usefulness of the exercises and the time and energy spent adjusting the plans as a result of them. The exercises also tended to create unlikely scenarios, particularly where force composition was concerned. During Victory Scrimmage, the Fifth Corps war game of January to February 2003, all five Army divisions on the deployment list, the 3rd Infantry Division, the 101st Airborne Division, the 1st Cavalry Division, 1st Armored Division, and 4th Infantry Division, participated in the exercise. This war game was designed to train 5th Corps how to command and control the maximum number of units possible, even though, as 101st Airborne Division Commander Major General David Petraeus pointed out, it was becoming increasingly unlikely the invasion could involve more than three. In the end, victory scrimmage created confusion about the division of responsibility across an unrealistically crowded theater, and even more uncertainty about deployment timelines. The late pre-war exercises also favored the traditional idea of core-level deep attacks with helicopters against major enemy formations. Despite the disappointing results of Task Force Hawk three years before, the aviation community believed a new training regimen, an upgraded aircraft in the form of the Apache Longbow helicopter. Better organization had eliminated the difficulties, and a Fifth Corps exercise using live-fire munitions on a range in Poland was deemed to validate the deep attack concept. Consequently, CFLCC and Fifth Corps retained deep aviation attacks as part of the scheme of maneuver. Planning for Baghdad the Joint Staff issued planning guidance on May 20, 2002, directing CENTCOM to begin developing plans for the liberation of Baghdad, after which CENTCOM passed the task on to CFLCC. The task came as no surprise, but presented some difficulties. The simulation exercises for Iraq had raised fears that urban combat in Baghdad could resemble that in the city of Grozny in the Chechen Republic or Mogadishu in Somalia. Two urban warfare conferences held separately by the Marines and Army in the fall of 2002 concluded that the invasion plans at that time did not sufficiently account for how to seize and secure Baghdad itself. McKiernan shared some of these concerns and, during the last two months before the invasion, instructed V Corps to draw up more detailed plans for urban operations in and around Baghdad. Within 5th Corps, the task eventually fell to Major General Ricardo Sanchez and the 1st Armored Division, a unit that SecDef Donald Rumsfeld had apparently decided not to include in the initial invasion force. Drawing on exercises and works that included Roger Spiller's Sharp Corners, 5th Corps and the 1st Armored Division developed a Baghdad security plan that included a graphical dissection of the city to allow air and ground units to pinpoint critical locations. It contained details about Baghdad's subterranean landscape, the locations and conditions of electrical and sewer systems, and how money flowed in and out of the city. 
These extensive urban preparations for Baghdad provided a baseline for some of the missions 5th Corps and 1st MEF units would assume in the city after the fall of the regime. Turkey, the northern option. In spring 2002, CENTCOM had conceived an idea to use psychological operations to deceive the Iraqi military into believing that the United States would send ground forces through Turkey to attack Iraq, a mission that CENTCOM judged could be performed by the 10th Special Forces Group. However, after a May 2002 session with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or CJCS, and some of the combatant commanders, held in the Joint Chiefs Pentagon Conference Room known as the Tank, CENTCOM recognized that more forces might be required in northern Iraq, particularly if the psychological operations failed to convince the Iraqi army units there to capitulate. In conjunction with European Command, or UCOM, CENTCOM began to look at options to move another U.S. division through Turkey in order to augment the 10th Special Forces Group. Using Turkish territory to stage a large invasion force would require consent from the newly elected Turkish government of Recep Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, a group with long-time ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. Because Turkey, a North Atlantic Treaty Organization or NATO member, was within UCOM's area of responsibility, UCOM was in charge of Operation Northern Watch and for operations in northern Iraq. With the permission of Turkish authorities, UCOM deployed 2,200 soldiers of the 1st Infantry Division to Turkey by January 2003 to arrange maintenance, logistics, and other support for the U.S. and coalition troops that needed to move along a 700-kilometer-long supply line across Turkey to the Iraqi border, a major logistical challenge. Once the logistical basics were in place, it was then time to designate the forces to invade from Turkey and obtain Turkish government support to use its territory for the invasion. The units designated for the Turkish front were the 4th Infantry Division from Fort Hood, Texas, and the 173rd Airborne Brigade based in Vicenza, Italy. The 5th Corps did not practice, exercise, or otherwise discuss operations with the 4th Infantry Division because of its assumption that those units would advance from the north and thus be out of the 5th Corps area of responsibility. It did, however, draw up contingency plans for the 4th Infantry Division's possible redirection to Kuwait in the event that the Turkish government denied the use of its territory for the invasion. In that case, Wallace and McKiernan decided that they would, quote, plug them in wherever they could plug them in, end quote. Alterations to the plan, WMD, regime collapse, and the free Iraqi forces. Military planners and U.S.-based analysts had long believed a red line existed in Iraq that, once crossed by coalition forces, would trigger Saddam's use of chemical weapons. Therefore, the invasion plan allowed for the possibility that coalition units would need to undergo decontamination and react to attacks by WMD. However, CENTCOM and CFLCC did not assign an organization to secure Iraq's presumed WMD until three months before the invasion, even though the Iraqis' alleged nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons stockpiles were the U.S. CASA's belly. The U.S. interagency's list of 900 suspected WMD sites was too extensive for the CFLCC to secure with a small invasion force that needed to focus its combat power on destroying the Iraqi military and defeating the regime security forces in Baghdad. In December 2002, the 75th Field Artillery Brigade was designated as the unit responsible for this mission and renamed the 75th Exploitation Task Force, or XTF. 
Once assigned to CFLCC, the 75th Brigade divided the 200 personnel assigned to the mission into sensitive site exploitation teams and mobile exploitation teams, then linking up with other U.S. government agencies to gather the information necessary to fulfill its new mission. The 75th Field Artillery Brigade also participated in CFLCC's Lucky Warrior exercise in February 2003, but the late notice the brigade received, combined with its lack of WMD expertise and the sheer volume of the suspected sites, would quickly overwhelm the 75th once Saddam's regime fell. Like other post-war planning entities, the 75th Field Artillery Brigade was not sufficiently resourced or integrated within enough time to achieve its objectives. In December 2002, analysts again received increasing indications that the Iraqi regime was on the verge of internal collapse. These circumstances led CENTCOM to develop contingency plans for an early regime collapse scenario that was similar to running start. Among other things, the analysts suspected that the growing political pressure on the regime and the buildup of coalition troops in Kuwait were leading to a prospective coup attempt or internal revolt. They believed that once Saddam was removed from power, the Iraqi army would capitulate and Saddam's more loyal military forces, including the Republican Guard, would fall into disarray and confusion, providing CENTCOM with a small window of opportunity in which to complete the destruction of the regime. Coalition airstrikes would sever Saddam's remaining command and control nodes and destroy any Republican Guard units that attempted to mount a defense. The V Corps would then race toward Baghdad as special operations forces moved to seize Saddam International Airport. A brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division would relieve the special operations forces in place as V Corps units surrounded Baghdad. Once conditions were set, CFLCC would relocate its headquarters to the secured Saddam International Airport. Like 1003V and Cobra II, this branch plan assumed risk along the lines of communications near the urban centers because of the need for an expeditious movement to Baghdad. The introduction of the early regime collapse scenario at the operational level significantly affected the composition of the invasion force. The units selected to participate in the invasion were separated and sequenced for deployment in a manner that would fulfill CENTCOM and CFLCC's desire to have greater flexibility earlier in the campaign. The initial invasion force was reduced to only the 3rd Infantry Division, the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment, a reinforced brigade combat team from the 101st Airborne Division, and 1st MEF. These invading units would be followed by the 1st Armored Division, the rest of the 101st Airborne Division, the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, or ACR, and the 1st Cavalry Division. Continual changes to the forces available for additional contingencies made it unclear what units came under 5th Corps' direct command. Another alteration to the invasion plan concerned an effort to create an Iraqi contingent for the invasion force. In spring 2002, under SecDef for Policy, Douglas Fife, in consultation with Iraqi expatriate leaders, became concerned about putting more of an Iraqi face on the invasion so that it would truly be seen as liberation rather than an occupation. Fife's idea was to recruit Iraqis living abroad to fight alongside the invading coalition forces, much like the Free French had helped liberate France in 1944, and, in fact, the Department of Defense, or DOD, dubbed the Iraqi unit the Free Iraqi Forces, or FIF. Recruitment efforts were directed at Iraqi expatriates in America and Western Europe, where thousands initially volunteered, including some from groups led by expatriate leaders Ahmad Chalabi and Ayad Alawi. However, 
turning volunteers into soldiers proved difficult. There were legal problems concerning how much the recruits could be paid, as well as law-of-war considerations about whether the FIF were legal combatants. These issues were superimposed over efforts to build a transitional Iraqi government in exile, also involving Chalabi and Alawi, and to link the FIF into that government. The amount of vetting required for each recruit was considerable, reducing the number that could be processed properly. Franks was not supportive of the effort, allocating little of his command's time or energy toward it and asking the office of the SECDEF why he should be responsible for, quote, 5,000 Iraqis who would have given him the combat power of 150 U.S. soldiers, end quote. Of the 5,000 to 7,000 FIF soldiers envisioned in Fife's original concept, only a few hundred were ultimately vetted, trained, and sent to Iraq in time for the invasion and the post-regime stability phase. Deployment of the Invasion Force As CENTCOM and CFLCC finalized their plans, coalition commanders waited anxiously for N-Day, the day that the president would notify them when the invasion would occur, with the deployment order that would initiate movement into Kuwait in accordance with the Time-Phased Force and Deployment Data, or TPFDD, to follow shortly thereafter. Uncertain of the operation's start date, the coalition's ground force commanders were concerned they might not be able to build up the required force in time to conduct the invasion on the president's timeline. Therefore, they used some innovative ways to pre-position forces in Kuwait in advance of N-Day. Beginning in September 2002, CFLCC, 5th Corps, and 1st MEF used a series of scheduled exercises as cover to move units into theater ahead of the expected deployment order. By October 2002, Portions of the 3rd Infantry Division and 1st MEF were in place in Kuwait to participate in scheduled training exercises and maneuvers. In October and November, CFLCC's exercise Lucky Warrior and CENTCOM's exercise Internal Look in Kuwait provided an opportunity for headquarters to prepare using an Iraq-based scenario and for the 3rd Infantry Division and portions of 1st MEF and 5th Corps to remain. While CFLCC and 5th Corps moved the key components of their ground forces into theater, CENTCOM worked to get its strategic-level assets in place. Under the cover of Internal Look, CFLCC's Lucky Warrior and a 5th Corps exercise called Juniper Cobra, CENTCOM discreetly deployed Patriot air defense batteries into Kuwait and Israel to defend against the Iraqi regime's short-range ballistic missiles and its suspected medium-range Scud and Hussein missiles. Finally, the Combined Forces Special Operations Component Command, or CFSOCC, used Operation Desert Spring to place part of 5th Special Forces Group in Kuwait. This flow of forces was interrupted, however, when Rumsfeld decided in early 2003 not to use the TPFDD and instead chose to deploy troops in a series of force packages as he had done for Afghanistan. His decision to discard the TPFDD was driven by several factors. First, in order to forestall a preemptive Iraqi attack, as well as to show domestic and international audiences that the United States had given diplomacy every chance of success, Rumsfeld and Bush wished to delay any formal announcement of their intent to use military force in Iraq until the last possible moment. This was difficult to do once the very noticeable machinery of the TPFDD had been set in motion. They both also wanted to provide CENTCOM with greater flexibility earlier in the campaign to respond to the early regime collapse scenario if necessary. Finally, 
Despite the value U.S. military leaders placed on the TPFDD, Rumsfeld believed the process was too cumbersome for the mobile, versatile force he envisioned. In Rumsfeld's view, the TPFDD was a symbol of some military leaders' stubborn resistance to his efforts to implement the revolution in military affairs. He, quote, always thought the military's requests for forces were off by a factor of two or three. He saw himself as bringing discipline to the force deployment process, end quote. Secretary of the Army Thomas White later recalled. In order to control and limit the size of the invasion force, Rumsfeld required his commanders to submit a series of requests for forces, or RFFs, for his approval. The SECDEF believed using RFFs would enable DOD to rearrange the flow of forces into theater more responsibly so that any units that were not needed could be easily scratched from the deployment list. The force package in each RFF was built around a U.S. Army Division, Armored Cavalry Regiment, or a Marine Corps equivalent. Enabler units, such as combat service support, field artillery, or military police, could be added or removed to the base force packages as needed. Each force package would require the approval of both Rumsfeld and Franks before its deployment. The RFF and force package model had some significant flaws, the biggest of which was that changes to the order in which combat units were scheduled to arrive would also alter the flow of logistical units and other enablers critical to building and sustaining CFLCC's combat power in theater. The sequence of arriving combat and sustainment forces changed numerous times based on when various divisions were required for the campaign. When Franks decided that he needed the 101st Airborne Division on the ground before the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, for example, the enablers for each unit could not be correspondingly rearranged. As a result, the enablers for the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment were in place when the 101st arrived in theater, but those for the 101st were not. The force package method also meant that army units could be shuffled in the deployment order without accounting for the fact that many army sustainment units were in direct or general support of CFS, OCC, or Marine units. By late February 2003, the 3rd Infantry Division, the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment, two brigades of the 101st Airborne Division, portions of 1st MEF, and the British 1st Armored Division had arrived in Kuwait, though some key pieces of those units were still moving into position. Portions of the 4th Infantry Division and the 1st Infantry Division were loading onto ships ahead of anticipated authorization to traverse Turkey for the invasion. The gathering of forces in Kuwait enabled the invasion force to begin rehearsals for end day. Although CENTCOM, CFLCC, and 5th Corps had conducted extensive rehearsals and exercises with each other, they had only infrequently incorporated the Marines and the British forces into joint and coalition rehearsals of the plan. Throughout February and March 2003, First CENTCOM and then CFLCC held a series of rehearsal of concept drills to ensure all U.S. components and the British forces were familiar with the plan, its changes, and its contingencies. On the eve of the invasion, CFLCC had slightly more than three divisions with which to destroy Iraq's military, topple the regime in Baghdad, and secure the country until follow-on forces and transitional authorities arrived in an incremental fashion. Despite McKiernan's request that the follow-on forces should be included in the invasion force, Franks and Rumsfeld decided in February 2003 that the 1st Armored Division and 1st Cavalry Division would not participate in the invasion itself, but would be used in its wake. The 1st Armored Division would deploy after the invasion, while the 1st Cavalry Division, unknown to McKiernan at the time, would not deploy to Iraq at all 
but would be held for future contingency operations arising from escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Planning for a Post-Regime Iraq The responsibility for a post-regime Iraq was a contentious topic as invasion plans circulated among various government agencies. Not until summer 2002 did the National Security Council establish an executive steering group to manage planning for Iraq after Saddam. Participants included the Department of State, DOD, intelligence agencies, and the Office of the Vice President. The executive steering group loosely coordinated several initiatives to create the conditions for a democratic and stable post-Saddam Iraqi government. The State Department's Future of Iraq project aimed to identify Iraqi oppositionists who could help build a successor government and to study issues expected to be important in the new Iraq, such as oil and energy infrastructure, security forces, legal and judicial systems, and economics and trade. Alongside the Department of State, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, formed another working group focused on post-regime reconstruction tasks. Some leading Iraqi oppositionists, including Ahmad Chalabi, refused to participate, thus hampering these U.S.-led working groups. More importantly, the conferences and working groups themselves produced no plan, but rather a series of papers on Iraq that, while informative, were not linked directly to any action arm. Many of the working papers were based on the same flawed assumptions that influenced military plans for Phase 4 that Iraqis would welcome the United States as a liberating force, and that the Iraqi government would retain some functionality after the senior Ba'ath leadership was removed. As a result, the executive steering group and its supporting working groups spent extensive time on building a humanitarian assistance package for Iraq, but comparatively little time on the functions of a post-regime government outside of the oil ministry. As the executive steering group did its work, the office of the SECDEF was simultaneously working on its own post-war plan. Fyth formed an Office of Special Plans under William Bill Luti to study the requirements of a successor Iraqi government, a task redundant and uncoordinated with the State Department's Future of Iraq project. Among other requirements, Luti's group judged that the U.S. military would need to remain in Iraq to support stability, governance, and reconstruction for several years. To remove the conflict of overlapping efforts, on January 20, 2003, Bush issued National Security Presidential Directive 24, designating DOD as the lead agency for post-war Iraq. The State Department and Powell were not pleased with this arrangement, particularly when DOD leaders declared their intention to put a U.S. embassy in Iraq under its control, a plan that the office of the SECDEF did not synchronize with any of the ongoing military planning for post-war Iraq. National Security Presidential Directive 24 also instructed DOD to establish an Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, or ORHA, that would oversee humanitarian assistance and some initial reconstruction efforts immediately following the invasion. To head ORHA, Rumsfeld selected retired Lieutenant General J. M. Garner as commander of Operation Provide Comfort, who had experience with humanitarian assistance in Iraq. As it formed in February to March 2003, Garner's group focused mostly on reconstruction planning, but without the resources of the U.S. interagency at its disposal. Instead, ORHA was expected to link its efforts with the Phase 4 planning already ongoing at CENTCOM and CFLCC. Late Military Planning for Phase 4 
As the invasion approached, CENTCOM and CFLCC began to pay more attention to Phase 4 of the operation. However, the bulk of their planning remained staunchly based on deployment efforts and major combat operations, resulting in a number of belated, overlapping plans for Phase 4 at higher echelons, and almost no preparations for Phase 4 at the core level and below, where neither 5th Corps nor 1st MEF made time to develop Phase 4 plans. CENTCOM's planners expected Phase 4 to last approximately two years, and its concept was one of a military occupation force operating under an unspecified civilian authority. As CENTCOM envisioned it, the military occupation would consist of all four of the Army's civil affairs commands, the majority of which were Army Reserve units, arranged in geographical sectors covering Baghdad, Western Iraq, Northern Iraq, and Southern Iraq. These civil affairs commands would assist the civilian authority with reconstruction and humanitarian assistance, with Iraqi army units assisting the civilian authority and civil affairs commands in providing security during the transition period after the collapse of the regime. As General Richard Myers saw it, however, Franks had little interest in Phase 4. In one December 2002 meeting, Myers was astonished by Franks' insistence that the invasion force's focus would not extend beyond taking Baghdad. CFLCC's post-invasion plan was more advanced than any of the other Phase 4 efforts. McKiernan and Wallace both assumed that CFLCC was the lead command in Iraq after major combat operations concluded. They expected that CFLCC would provide support to a joint and interagency coordination group to sustain humanitarian assistance operations, conduct critical life support infrastructure repair, destroy pockets of resistance, support an interim Iraqi security assistance force, and provide overall maintenance of general and public order as key Iraqi institutions were rehabilitated over a period of five to seven months. After that period, CFLCC expected to become or to hand over its duties to the Combined Joint Task Force Iraq, or CJTFI, which would eventually transition its operations to Iraqis, non-governmental organizations, or international control over an additional four or five years. This CFLCC plan, upon which work was well underway in January 2003, was named Eclipse II after the Allied plan to occupy Germany in World War II. ORHA, meanwhile, was just getting on its feet when CFLCC issued its Eclipse II plan. Franks was delighted to have found someone willing to take responsibility for Phase 4, and equally pleased by the prospect of, quote, getting the interagency off his ass, end quote. Interestingly, Garner saw regime replacement, rather than humanitarian assistance, as the coalition's fundamental post-war task, and ORHA accordingly began developing plans to reform Iraq along political, economic, and security lines of operation. At the Pentagon, the sparseness of CENTCOM's Phase Four planning had concerned Lt. Gen. John Abizade, director of the Joint Staff, who noted in September 2002 that CENTCOM's rudimentary plan was not sufficiently detailed or resourced to achieve the president's end state. He also noted the CENTCOM plan required every civil affairs soldier in the army. To come up with something more effective, Abizade detailed the Joint Staff J-5, Lieutenant General George Casey, to work with CENTCOM to develop a more in-depth plan. At Casey's direction, the Joint Staff sent more than 50 personnel to CENTCOM under Brigadier General Stephen R. Hawkins to take charge of planning for post-major combat operations for Iraq. Designated as Joint Task Force 4, or JTF-4, Hawkins and his team arrived at CENTCOM in the third week of January 2003. 
JTF-4 and CENTCOM were immediately at odds owing to Hawkins' difficult manner and the challenges of integrating planning at so late a stage. JTF-4 deployed to Kuwait in late January and, after declining an offer from Garner to work under ORHA's auspices, Hawkins' group was eventually absorbed by CFLCC to augment its Phase 4 planning efforts. Other military Phase 4 efforts also began and ended in isolation as the United States ramped up for war. In October 2002, the Army G-3 directed the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, to identify and evaluate prospective missions for ground forces in a post-regime Iraq. SSI responded with a report published in February 2003 that superimposed lessons learned from reconstruction operations in the Philippines, Germany, and Japan with some of the unique characteristics of Iraq's physical and social infrastructure to distill the most likely challenges ground forces would face after the fall of Saddam. In a detailed mission matrix for Iraq, the report identified probable key tasks for humanitarian assistance and reconstruction operations and recommended military and civilian organizations to achieve them. Unfortunately, the report came out less than a month prior to the invasion and was not incorporated into the ongoing Phase 4 planning efforts. By March 2003, UCOM created its own Phase 4 organization, the Military Coordination and Liaison Command, or MCLC, to work with military and humanitarian assistance organizations and organize the delivery of humanitarian assistance to Iraq from the north. The MCLC was a small team commanded by Marine Lieutenant General Henry Pete Osman with two offices pre-positioned in the Kurdish region. These six overlapping military planning efforts for Phase 4 were insufficiently detailed and largely uncoordinated with interagency efforts or with each other. Most of the plans were based on the same flawed assumptions about the Iraqi government, people, and military that were contained in the larger invasion plan. The redundant groups created by DOD and the Joint Staff caused confusion about which one had primacy for post-war Iraq and consequently diffused responsibility for the planning effort across commands. The Rumsfeld-Shinseki Showdown While relations between the SECDEF and the Army's senior leaders were already tense, Shinseki's February 24, 2003 testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee brought them to the breaking point. In response to a question from Senator Carl Levin about the number of troops required for a post-invasion occupation force in Iraq, Shinseki estimated that the force required was, quote, something on the order of several hundred thousand soldiers. End quote. He later explained to the SECDEF that this open-ended answer was designed to permit him and Franks the, quote, maximum flexibility in arriving at the final number, end quote, of required forces. For Shinseki, the estimate was a simple matter of taking the force ratio he had seen that was required to secure Bosnia in 1997 and extrapolating it to the much larger Iraqi population and territory. Appearing before the same committee two days later, after privately requesting that Levin ask him the same question, White publicly endorsed Shinseki's estimate. The army leader's public opinions differed sharply from those of Rumsfeld and Deputy SecDef Paul Wolfowitz and quickly caused a political storm. The following day, House Democrats accused Wolfowitz of, quote, concealing internal administration estimates on the cost of fighting and rebuilding the country, end quote, prompting the deputy secretary to retort that Shinseki's estimates were, quote, wildly off the mark, end quote. 
The very public disagreement between the Army and the Office of the SecDef over Rumsfeld's judgment that Iraq could be won with minimal money, energy, and forces ended with the removal of senior Army dissenters from the equation. The same day Wolfowitz rebutted Shinseki's troop estimate, Rumsfeld summoned White into his office and fired him, though White would nominally retain the post for a two-month transition period. Shinseki, instead of being fired, was allowed to retire as scheduled in June. The Shinseki Office of the SecDef dispute came during a stormy week for the invasion's architects. On March 2nd, the day after Rumsfeld fired White, the Turkish parliament voted to deny the U.S. request to send ground forces through Turkey to attack across Iraq's northern border. Throughout January and February 2003, U.S. diplomats and representatives from UCOM, CENTCOM, and Special Operations Command, or SOCOM, had worked with the Turkish military to define a package of benefits and concessions to entice Turkey to authorize the United States to use its territory without allowing the Turkish military to expand its military footprint in northern Iraq. However, a series of miscommunications and a fundamental misunderstanding of the ongoing internal power struggle between Recep Erdogan's Islamist government and the Turkish military resulted in U.S. leaders watching as the Turkish parliament unexpectedly disapproved U.S. basing rights by a mere three votes. Though CENTCOM and UCOM were able to keep troops of the 1st Infantry Division along the Turkey-Iraq border, Turkey's denial of a northern route had a profound impact on the invasion and its aftermath. Iraq Prepares for War, page 69. As coalition units moved into position in Kuwait, CENTCOM, CFLCC, and Fifth Corps refined their assessments of the Iraqi regime's likely defense plans. Upon the initiation of coalition air and ground attacks, they expected Saddam to disperse his forces, initiate his plan to defend Baghdad, activate the Iraqi Quds Force, and conduct either a defense of Baghdad in depth or a deliberate attack. They assessed that the most dangerous Iraqi course of action was a deliberate attack against Kuwait as coalition forces flowed into that country. The most likely course of action, however, was a defense in depth across southern Iraq, a scenario in which Saddam's main effort would likely consist of six of the regular army divisions positioned along the major highways leading to Baghdad. The 13 regular army and Republican Guard divisions positioned along the Green Line would defend against any coalition attack from the north. CENTCOM anticipated that Saddam would use controlled flooding to delay the coalition ground forces and, after stopping them with flooding, use artillery and short-range missiles against them. CENTCOM also believed that Saddam would launch missiles against Israel to fracture the coalition politically and to attack the Kurds and Shia at any signs of uprising or collusion with the coalition ground attack. Finally, CENTCOM expected that as coalition forces approached Baghdad, Saddam would authorize the use of chemical weapons against them. CENTCOM and CFLCC were convinced that Saddam and his inner circle would fight intensely once coalition forces entered Baghdad, but that Iraqi forces outside of Baghdad would vary widely in their capability and will to fight. CENTCOM expected the Republican Guard to fight in company-sized units and perhaps even battalion formations, while the paramilitary forces would bolster the Iraqi army's smaller formations. The general expectation was that, even with a reduced invasion force, coalition military forces could achieve a rapid and decisive victory over the Iraqi security forces. Coalition leaders judged the most challenging fight would be the battle for Baghdad. 
Saddam's Expectations Saddam did not significantly alter Iraqi army and Republican Guard plans for the defense of Iraq until the end of 2002. Although it was becoming apparent that a coalition invasion was imminent, Saddam's primary concerns remained, preventing internal regime collapse and preparing for a popular uprising. If the coalition did invade, Saddam expected only limited coalition military operations that would seize key terrain but not necessarily remove him from power. Therefore, while he anticipated some initial military defeats, he expected they would be followed by protracted military operations during which he could buy time and sue for peace with support from the international community. Saddam told his commanders to expect a considerable air campaign followed by a limited ground war, as in 1991, and warned them not to expect to be very mobile because of the air campaign. Once the air attacks and limited ground maneuvers concluded, however, Saddam anticipated that coalition operations would slow or come to a halt as the United States gauged the Iraqi regime's next move. On December 18, 2002, Saddam, through his second son, Qusay, ordered the Republican Guard to reorient their defensive posture along a series of concentric rings around Baghdad, based on the assumption that coalition forces would be worn out with fighting by the time they reached the outer ring. Kusay instructed the Republican Guard leadership to engage the American forces on the outer rings and gradually withdraw to the inner rings if defeated on the outer ones. If forced to withdraw into the city, the Republican Guard was directed to fight to the death. Despite these defensive orders, Saddam remained confident that he and his forces would survive long enough for him to encourage the United Nations or other international powers to intervene and halt the coalition advance. Saddam's optimism was reinforced by his ignorance of how decrepit and ineffective were his own forces. Over the years, his demands for positive information from his commanders had created a culture of rhetoric and reporting that was detached from reality, in which commanders who reported problems were seen as unfit. Thus, the true state of affairs, that most of the conventional forces under his command were not properly resourced, trained, staffed, or otherwise prepared to engage the coalition military, seems never to have entered his mind. Not until the final weeks before the invasion did Saddam consider some of the defensive measures the coalition had expected. In March 2003, Saddam received intelligence reports about U.S. intentions to set up coalition military rule and a democratic government after dismantling the Ba'athist regime. Saddam subsequently reviewed military assessments that the United States would likely target in order, Saddam himself, his air defense systems, the military command, control, and communication infrastructure, and his suspected WMD sites, with an extended bombing campaign. Because he anticipated his forces would be immobilized by coalition bombings, Saddam gave orders to stockpile arms, munitions, and equipment in military schools, training areas, and similar locations inside Iraq's cities, after which Iraqi military units built large caches of weapons and ammunition. In order to further slow any coalition advance on Baghdad, Saddam made plans to destroy the northern and southern oil fields, as CENTCOM had long projected he would. Although, in the course of events, Iraqi troops and officials would obey few of his instructions for this scorched-earth approach. Saddam also decided to reinforce his military defense with paramilitary and terrorist operations. In January 2003, Saddam issued an emergency order for the Ba'ath Party militia and the Fediyin to prepare to defend against internal uprisings in the event of limited attacks on Iraqi soil. This was the first of a series of orders directed at his paramilitary forces in advance of the coalition invasion. 
He subsequently directed the Fedayeen to work with its foreign affiliates and use a combination of coercion, intimidation, and propaganda to induce collaboration from Iraq's citizens in key population centers. Trained on, quote, small unit tactics, sabotage techniques, and military surveillance and reconnaissance tasks, end quote, the Fedayeen were adept at guerrilla and sabotage techniques. As the invasion approached, they also began planning suicide operations against the coalition. Less than 30 days prior to the start of the war, the Special Mission Unit of the Iraqi Military Intelligence Directorate took charge of a group of Fedayeen volunteers to form into, quote, small kamikaze combat groups, end quote, equipped with weapons and munitions suitable for use behind enemy lines and on the flanks by damaging enemy armor and helicopters. These volunteers attended a 30-day course to prepare for these missions beginning in March 2003. With its heavy presence in Iraqi cities and its new mission to resist the coalition through terrorist-type activities, the Fedayeen had effectively become the Iraqi regime's first line of urban defense. Iraqi Military Expectations Iraqi army leaders were much more concerned about the American military capabilities and intentions than was the overconfident Saddam. According to a report written by senior Iraqi military leaders, the Iraqi army believed that the United States would likely use airborne assaults, psychological operations, and technologically superior maneuver forces to move quickly to Baghdad. They believed that the U.S.-led invasion force would, quote, avoid capturing whole cities, end quote, and would focus instead on, quote, important routes to control entry and exit points for towns and cities with the objective of preventing the arrival of Iraqi reinforcements in order to create a strict siege against cities, end quote. Many Iraqi military leaders were familiar with U.S. military superiority and were pessimistic about the outcome. Lieutenant General Kenan Mansour Khalil al-Ubaidi, the dean of the Iraqi Military Academy, later commented that, quote, we military officers knew that the war was coming and that it would be the end. I knew U.S. forces would go for Baghdad and that those forces would go all the way. We knew also of the U.S. fighting capabilities. End quote. Elsewhere, some Republican Guard leaders expressed veiled concerns about the Ring defense plan as operationally unsound, but were told by Kusay that Saddam had approved the new plan, effectively ending the discussion. Even as the Iraqi army continued to fortify its defensive positions, its senior leaders generally believed that the invasion and their defeat were both imminent. Gathering scores of Iraqi general officers at a base near the Baghdad airport in March 2003, Army Chief of Staff General Sultan Hashim told his assembled officers that diplomacy had failed, a coalition invasion was imminent, and Iraq's military defeat was certain. Nevertheless, Sultan told the generals their duty was to fight hard and stave off defeat as long as possible. Iraqi Major General Najim Jabouri recalled that Sultan's intended pep talk had the opposite effect. It caused the senior officer's morale to plummet. Iraqi military officers assessed that the U.S.-led invasion forces would first seize Basra and move into Mizan and Qadisiyah provinces from the south and east before moving from Fallujah into Baghdad from the west. This estimate did not deduce the coalition's eventual main northward thrust west of the Euphrates, but was much closer to reality than Saddam's expectations. Unlike Saddam, the Iraqi military thought these maneuvers would take the U.S. military a week or less, rather than months. 
Like Saddam, however, the Iraqi military expected that, much like Operation Desert Storm, the coalition would conduct a lengthy air campaign prior to any ground campaign. The early leaflet drops only reinforced that assessment. Iraqis obtained intelligence that suggested the air campaign would begin between March 18th and 20th, 2003, and the first targets would be Saddam's suspected locations. They then expected that the air campaign would be followed by a ground assault from the north, south, and west. The northern avenues of approach were the highways heading south from Mosul and Kirkuk. Those in the west and southwest went through Rutba to Ramadi and through Karbala, respectively and the approaches from the south split from Basra toward Amara and Nasiriya and converged at Kut before continuing up the Tigris to Baghdad. The invasion forces would then move along these major highways, securing urban centers as they went. Because Iraqi military leaders expected the targets of the air campaign would be active military forces, known headquarters buildings, and ammunition depots and warehouses, they intended to disperse their supplies and units as widely as possible to avoid losing large amounts in a single bombing. They aimed to do the same with their military command and control. The Iraqis had long expected that the coalition invasion would include a western front from Jordan, and a number of indicators seemed to validate their assessment. The Iraqi M4 intelligence directorate kept a close watch on the coalition force buildup in Jordan, where the arrival of additional aircraft and medical equipment, coupled with indicators that the Jordanian government was reassuring foreign embassies that they were protected, all seemed to point to a coalition western front. The Iraqis also expected that the coalition would conduct reconnaissance missions in western Iraq to locate any missiles that could be fired at Israel and to evaluate the security of Iraq's western airfields. Iraqi officers believed these missions would be followed by airborne assaults of combat troops onto the airfields near Rutba, Nukhaib, and Al-Walid, among other locations, and then continue toward key terrain on the outskirts of Baghdad. Beginning in mid-February 2003, the Iraqi military was aware that U.S. and British Special Operations Forces were in western Iraq, and they believed those forces were the early reconnaissance element they anticipated from the west. In mid-March, coalition troops inside western Iraq captured an Iraqi special mission unit whom they mistakenly assumed to be an Iraqi conventional force, after which the U.S. special operators agreed to release the Iraqis on condition that they would capitulate once the invasion commenced. The presence and demands of those forces, combined with other reports of coalition vehicles near Al-Qaim, Rutba, and elsewhere in Anbar, seemed to confirm an impending invasion to the west. The Iraqis were also aware of U.S. special operations outreach to the Kurds in northern Iraq, but believed that the Kurds would only be acting as scouts for the coalition follow-on invasion force from the north. They did not expect the Kurds, at least not the KDP Peshmerga, to participate in the fighting. They expected that the U.S. special operations forces in the north would move quickly to, quote, carry out assassinations in Iraqi cities upon the commencement of the invasion, end quote. The Iraqis' Final Preparations Once it became clear in early March that Turkey would not permit the coalition to transit through Iraq's northern border, Saddam and his military commanders at last reinforced their defenses in the southern, south-central, and central zones along southern and western avenues of approach to Baghdad. Just days before the invasion began, Qusay ordered the Fedayeen to reposition from Baghdad, which they originally intended to defend, to cities in the southern zone to mount a defense from those locations instead. 
The Iraqi regime reinforced these fedayeen with volunteer fighters called Mujahideen and suicide bombers from Egypt, Sudan, and other Arab countries with terrorist organizations or entities sympathetic to the Iraqi cause. The Fedayeen were also likely to be tasked to assist the local Ba'ath Party headquarters, the Iraqi Quds forces, and intelligence services with preventing the large-scale desertion or capitulation of the conventional Iraqi military forces. Saddam, likely in coordination with Izat Ibrahim al-Duri, also arranged for the Nebuchadnezzar Division of the Republican Guard, assigned to the Northern Zone, quietly to leave its vehicles in place in the north but move its soldiers south to Babil province the week prior to the invasion a large-scale troop movement that went undetected by the coalition. Iranian and Badr Corps Militia Preparations The Iraqi regime and its troops were not the only military actors prepared to respond to the invasion of Iraq. Documents captured from members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran operating in Iraq in the summer of 2003 revealed Iran's detailed courses of action for military operations in Iraq in the event of an American invasion. The Iranians intended to use the Badr Corps, expanded from its original brigade size and directed by Iranian agents, to subvert American efforts to occupy Iraq successfully, with the subversion including military, political, and social means. In the months before the coalition invasion, Badr Corps units accompanied Iranian infantry and missile brigades as they moved into positions along the border. The Badr Corps also developed assassination lists of Sunni military personnel, Baathists, and others who collaborated with the regime that they intended to execute systematically once the opportunity presented itself. The leadership of the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq intended for the Badr Corps to enter Iraq surreptitiously as Saddam's regime collapsed and to seize towns and government offices to fill the vacuum. Establishing local control and carrying out reprisal attacks would set the conditions necessary for SCIRI to mobilize their political base in the aftermath of the regime. After months of hard planning, wargaming, and rehearsals, the coalition ground forces assembled in Kuwait in March 2003 were confident they could defeat Saddam's military and topple the regime. Although getting the forces into theater quickly using the RFF packages proved to be challenging logistically, the pre-positioning of maneuver forces and Patriot missile batteries made McKiernan and Wallace comfortable with the smaller contingent of forces they had available for the invasion. They also knew that the 4th Infantry Division and 1st Armored Division were moving toward Kuwait and presumably would be available well before the main invasion force was expected to reach Baghdad. Despite the fact that Phase 4 preparations and new Phase 4 entities like ORHA lagged far behind in the planning office, Franks and other senior leaders expected that those plans and organizations still had two or three months in which to prepare before stability operations and a civilian authority would be needed. In any case, Franks and other commanders believed stability operations were a far less pressing matter than the major combat operations at hand. Saddam's focus on positive information and his own wishful thinking led his military leaders to provide him with assessments that were highly unrealistic. As a result, the Iraqi dictator expected some early defeats, but was confident his forces could hold Baghdad long enough for him to appeal to international allies to halt the American invasion. At the last minute, however, the massing coalition forces in Kuwait caused Saddam to panic, and he deployed the Fedayeen and Ba'ath Party militias south, throwing his own military plans to defend Baghdad into disarray. 
Iraq's actual military preparations sharply contrasted with coalition estimates of what the Iraqis were likely to do, which focused on Iraq's Republican Guard units and Saddam's expected use of chemical weapons as the principal threats against the coalition ground force advance. These threat projections, combined with unrealistic exercises, led the coalition to underestimate Iraq's paramilitary forces and employ a scheme of maneuver that used helicopter deep attacks as the primary shaping operation, while assuming risk around the urban areas in southern Iraq that Saddam's regime, at the 11th hour, effectively had made its main effort. These choices would create surprises for the coalition in the invasion to come. End of Chapter 3 Maneuvering into Position Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021